The views expressed in this podcast are those of individuals and do not reflect those of the U.S. government, the Peace Corps, or the government of Panama. Hello, my name is Dan Lipkowitz and welcome to the Peace Corps Panama Files. In this podcast miniseries, each week I will be interviewing a different volunteer who is finishing up their Peace Corps service in Panama. We'll talk about where they come from, what led them to join the Peace Corps, and with each guest I'll tackle a different fundamental aspect of serving as a volunteer in Panama. We'll delve into what has been enlightening, difficult, and downright strange as they've navigated the cultural and professional journey of serving as a volunteer over the past two years. This week, I was lucky enough to have Karen Ritland stop by. We talked about her community of City Grande and its momentous peak, how its sylvan beauty coincides with her deep visceral connection with the natural world and her experiences of exploring it. Karen shared how her desire to explore and immerse herself in a new culture led her to join the Peace Corps, and the joys and difficulties of manifesting that passion as a woman while considering Panamanian gender norms. Then we dug deep into deciphering the roots of Karen's dedication and personal investment of energy into our work as a volunteer, something that's not only noteworthy in its own right, but also particularly fascinating as a Peace Corps volunteer, where failure is encountered frequently in our projects, and one would expect tempering one's commitment to come more naturally. We examined her philosophy of persistence beyond brain or brawn as a key to success, and discussed expanding this personal drive to communal cooperation by leading through example. I'm, I'm hoping on this podcast that we get a lot of like animal noises just to add an ambiance factor to it. All the roosters. All the roosters for sure. Okay. Maybe a couple got the solos. I don't know what noise they make. <laughs> uh, yeah. Do you like do raccoons? Because that's like what got the solos. Yeah. And do they have? A, is there a raccoon call? I don't know. There probably is. We'll have to look into this. Yeah. Okay. So I'm joined here today by one of my incredibly wonderful friends and a absolutely stellar volunteer, (laughs) Karen Ritland. What's your middle name, Karen? Elizabeth. Karen Elizabeth Ritland. (laughs) Karen, thank you so much for coming to uh, La Bonga to let me interview for the second episode of the Peace Corps Panama Files. Thanks for having me. I always look for an excuse to hike on over to your site and hang out with you. Yeah. All right. (laughs) That's a perfect lead-in to my first question. You don't live too far away. You live within hiking, walking distance. Tell us a little bit about your community in Panama. What's it called? What's it like? Where is it located? Okay. I live in Civi Grande. It is in Panama Oeste, um, a couple hours, like three hours from the city, but it's very different from Panama City. It's pretty cool that you can go from the urban Cinta Costera, the skyscrapers, all the way up to the Campo, where there's only power in half my community. There's dirt roads, rickety, uh, hand-built bridges, um, wooden houses, and... And yeah, you can you can do that all in a day. Um, it is it's a community of about eight hundred people, mostly mm-hmm. mostly farming coffee and root vegetables. But coffee is our biggest product, um, which is perfect. It aligns with my my soul and my needs. <laughs> your, your <laughs> coffee consumption, which is high. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So that's ideal. Um, and I am lucky enough to be within walking distance of several volunteers um, which has also made a big part of my experience is being able to pop over to you pop over to Julie pop over to Annalise absolutely Um, that's been huge yeah I think uh, for our listeners in Panama the the volunteers 
especially in our sector of uh, conservation and environmental education, we're put in clusters. Uh, that's a new organizational aspect where we're put kind of close to each other, which encourages cooperation, uh, but not so close that uh, we don't each have our own individual uh, experience in, in our communities. And it's, it's really nice actually to have you in walking distance and your community, City Grande, has this incredibly awe-inspiring peak that stands out on the on the Panamanian uh, skyline. Its topography is completely different from all the other mountains here. And I know personally, uh, it's about it's about a three-hour hike between our two communities. But I can always see your peak as I'm walking through my community, and it's oh. nice to look over there and be like, oh, Karen's. Karen's just crushing it over there, <laughs> doing some incredible stuff. Just hanging out right on the other side of that cerro. Yeah. It's been, I think for me, like, nature is a big part of, like, me and who I am and having, I I think somehow, I I feel like that site was meant for me, having a giant, um, magnificent, just, like, stunning rock face in my site, which has kind of grounded me throughout my service. Mm-hmm. Um, it's given me kind of, like, this, like, I, it's reminded me that I will always have like big adventures and that there's always like big things out there that I, I don't even know what they are yet, but it, it like attaches, it makes me feel okay on my more domestic days or when I'm living yeah. kind of a more mellow life that I will have big things and that nature is still out there and is still bigger. I've definitely had that me. experience of, uh, having kind of a metaphorical attachment to certain to certain aspects of my community here. And I yeah. think having yeah, having that with the mountain totally makes sense to me. And that's a perfect segue. You said part of your soul, kind of your upbringing, where you come from. Where do you come from in the United States? Give us a little bit of background of what you were doing, where you were before you came here to Panama. Okay. So I, I was born in Salt Lake City, Utah. Cool. But I grew up in Vermont. I moved there when I was two, so that's where... All my upbringing was was in a small town in Vermont mm-hmm. um, with two outdoor enthusiast parents, which was great. We always went hiking. What do you? What do your parents do? Um, my dad is a firefighter. Awesome. Recently retired, was a firefighter. My mom was a nurse. Cool. Um, and yeah, so we we spent a lot of our time out in the woods, out visiting national parks, just always with a love for adventure, um, which was amazing. And then I ended up going to school in Colorado. I went to Colorado College where I studied environmental science mm-hmm. um, and spent most of my weekends and block breaks, these five-day weekends that they gave us every month off campus exploring the mountains and in the states, in, in Colorado and the neighboring states, um, whether it was skiing, climbing, hiking, backpacking, running. It was I don't know, I was just always appreciating nature, which then led me to Vermont Law School to get my master's in environmental law um, and back into the lovely Green Mountains. Um, And from there, I went out to Lake Tahoe to do environmental conservation work. I worked for a nonprofit, um, and, and I guess during that time, I, I was like very happy with my life. Mm and so happy, and, and I had found, I found, like, everything I needed. I, I worked with a bunch of, I lived with a bunch of young professionals who were also outdoor enthusiasts, but also, like, in love with their work. Yeah. Um, and I found that I wasn't quite ready to st- 
stay in one place. Um, and I, I ran into too many people who had said, oh, I came here for one winter. And it's been eight years that I, I was too young to be there and, and slip into this time warp and mm-hmm. come out in my like late 30s, not never having left Tahoe, which, yeah. I, which I could have done because it's amazing. So I left promptly <laughs> <laughs> because I loved it so much. I, I realized that early on, I identified that in myself uh-huh. and I, um, that kind of triggered me to, to go explore and do things that made me a little less comfortable mm-hmm. knowing that I could always come back and find that again. Um, yeah. And, Cause you could always go back to, to like Tahoe, I uh, imagine. Right. Yeah. I always can. And I can always go back to another, a dozen, a hundred other communities that are very similar. Well, that's also, I feel like you have the unique experience of having, hearing this now, I've just realized that you've covered the East Coast with Vermont, and then you hit the middle of the country with Colorado, and then you hit the West Coast with California, so you have a pretty, a pretty broad understanding of, I guess, of our country in general. You've done a, a fair amount in each section of, <laughs> of our nation. Yes. Cool. There's still that middle section east of Colorado that's a mystery to me. But Might stay mystery. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not. So you decided that you wanted to leave, that you wanted to change. Um, <coughs> yeah. And you started looking uh, towards... Were you, were you looking specifically out of the U.S.? Or, or what kind of drove you... Or what, what directed you towards Peace Corps? <coughs> um, I, so... I, when I was in college, I studied abroad twice, mm-hmm. uh, one time in Thailand and one time, and I did a semester split between Kenya and Tanzania, so I realized I wanted to go abroad, and I also, in these two experiences, realized it had to be for a long amount of time, yeah. and it couldn't be, I couldn't be traveling. I had to be living somewhere, and I really wanted to live somewhere and learn about a new culture, mm-hmm. um, and really appreciate it, and I found I know there's like a there's other modes of doing it but the Peace Corps seemed like one of the better ways to really get the opportunity for me to immerse myself in a new culture. Yeah, they definitely drive home that that message of you're gonna integrate yourself, you're gonna become settled here and become part of the community. Yeah. 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 Um so so that kind of drove you to Peace Corps and then your initial interest, was there something uh, that kind of pushed you over the edge that made you finally make that leap of faith to committing two years of your life to a different country. Also, I think it's fair to note that now the Peace Corps application process is a little bit different uh, and you get to choose what country you want to go to, but yeah. we were the last group that you didn't get to choose which country you went to. This is true. So it was even a larger commitment because you were saying... I will go somewhere for two years, but put me anywhere. I don't know where. Short interlude because it started pouring rain down here. <laughs> but we were talking about what was the, what kind of like pushed you over the edge and it made you decide you were, you really wanted to join the Peace Corps. Um, okay, so I, by the time I had done the application and I had kind of like, put all my stuff in and, and was kind of at the point of like, do I actually do this? Do I not? I had started going on a lot of really good adventures. I hiked the John Muir Trail. I went on a big bike trip. I just like kind of like threw myself in the outdoors of California. Yeah. 
and and was kind of like wavering, like why would I leave such an amazing thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was living with um, people in their late twenties, and we kind of discussing all this with them. Why would I leave the things that make me the happiest? Yeah. These amazing people, the outdoors, um, and and like the Sierras in particular, just kind of like grabbed my heart. Um, and I think a big thing was knowing. That they'll be there. They're not going anywhere. <laughs> you know, the high seers aren't leaving. I mean, yeah. there are the other places. I mean, I I know that there are mountains. They're going to be there. Whether or not they will be as protected when I get home is like a whole another field. Yeah. But, but they'll be there. And I think I, coming back to the Cerro, the big rock that's a couple hundred feet tall that I look at every single morning in my community. It reminds you I'm, of the Sierra. Yeah, it reminds me that they'll be there and it makes everything okay. So, oh. I, yeah. So I think leaving for me, I let go of of my good friends. I, I you know, my family. I, I left all that behind and I knew I could come back to them. But I think a big thing for me was leaving the freedom to roam and the freedom to go on these adventures. Mm -hmm. That was something that had driven me so much and has made me so happy throughout my life. But I know that that is something that I can come back to. And it sounds like you already have like a really deep appreciation for, for that natural environment in first in Vermont, then in Colorado, then in California, even before leaving. But do you think that now with that, do you, has your perspective on those things that you really cherish changed since you've come down here? Now that you've spent two years down here away from them, do you appreciate them in a new way? Or is, or what's the best way to, to articulate this? Or, or are they, or has that just that initial kind of love at first sight sustained itself throughout those two years? Um, it definitely has. I think I appreciate more the the freedom to roam and explore that I had in the States um, and the freedom to, to wander and to go on trails and, and the systems that we have in the parks that are protected because here we're surrounded by nature, but it's harder to access. It's harder to access a, because I'm a female B because there's a lot of snakes, there's poisonous things out there. It's actually more dangerous. (laughs) Um, And there's not necessarily trails. There aren't marked trails. So I can't, go out on a 10-mile loop alone because there aren't 10-mile loops to go on. Yeah. Um, and so I am appreciating how amazing the trail systems, the parks, the forests are in the States and what what our country has done to allow people to recreate all the time in all these amazing places. So I, I appreciate it a lot more. I didn't realize how lucky we were as a country to have that and how safe I feel most of the time when I'm out alone. Yeah. There is definitely that like rhyme of the ancient mariner sort of like water, water all around, but not a drop to drink sort of thing. Cause we're, we are surrounded by yeah. mountains and trees, but it is very hard to penetrate both literally because the forest is so thick and yeah. figuratively because we lack that knowledge of these tree species where things are exactly located. I think after two yeah. years, we're just starting to really understand the geography of where we are. Yeah. And now I feel a little bit more comfortable going out, but still, like you were saying, uh, a 10-mile loop in this wilderness is not something that's doable. No, it's not. And and also, you you just mentioned that, especially as a female here, that, that it seems like 
doing that sort of natural exploration doesn't come as easily. Could you expand on that a little bit more? Why why do you feel that way? I think, so a big part of Peace Corps is to to gain the respect of of my community members um, and to gain their trust. And so I feel, while I feel like a very strong, very competent female, I still need to fit into a certain role so my community members respect that I make sound choices. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a female, they don't really want me wandering out alone too much. And I, I respect that and I respect them. And I respect the choice that I made to come here and integrate. Yeah. And in doing so, conform to some gender roles that don't, I don't necessarily vibe with, but I'm willing to do for two years. Yeah. Um, and while sometimes it's hard, it's it's okay with me that I will take less risks and, or yeah, explore less and go out less than I would in the States or I would even if I were a male. Um, Absolutely. I, I mean, I think this is something that I talked about with Brent on, on the first episode, uh, but I think that you definitely... I, I think that you definitely female volunteers, but but all volunteers even as a male have experienced this at certain times. You have to compromise, mm-hmm. and you have to you have to dedicate certain uh, you have to dedicate yourself to certain roles that you wouldn't necessarily assume on your own in order to achieve things that you that you find uh, are more important. You really have to prioritize. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I do think that 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 experience as a, as a female volunteer here, especially someone that has, uh, that's so active and someone that's so used to that. I, I found it really interesting that you felt a little, I guess, uh, limited in that, in, in your ability to do that. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, through, through your, through your work, through your integration with your community, what sort of uh, and I guess through that act of kind of compromising as well, has that given you any specific sort of insights uh, that you're, or understandings that you think you're going to take back to the United States with you as you re-enter the U.S. culture or search for jobs out there? I mean, we'll we'll get into what you're doing when you get back first, but yeah, uh, l- later on in the podcast. But um, what sort of cultural values have you picked up here that you find really positive? Things that you think that you are going to take back. Um, one thing I want to find a way to do is, is take back the ability, I think, especially living in a farming culture, mm-hmm. work and living are often the same thing. And, and while they do go to the, the farms and come home at the end of the day, there's a lot of things that are just daily tasks that are considered their work as it is their livelihood that are part of their life. And so separating the two, it's not as separate here mm-hmm. as it is in the States. And and it's just how how they conduct their lives. And I would like to find a way to make my work and my life not as separate and not make the tasks of work and the tasks of life. I don't want to have, I don't want to leave and just like be able to just be on, on a Friday afternoon be like, okay, like done. You know, like, glad to be out of there, like, you know, and just, Absolutely. like, yeah. I want it to be a little more, I want to find a way to find work. Have each seep into the other. Yeah. And, yeah. And happily so. Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think that's a really, that's a really beautiful way to think about, uh, think about kind of work 
and free time and having them not be, be separate from one. And also a great observation of kind of how people work here. I find all the time, especially also being an agricultural community, that there aren't strict hours. You know, the, yeah. the workday doesn't, there is no, oh, it's five o'clock, so I'm not really going to do anything today. I'm not going to do anything anymore. If something's going on at five o'clock, if you haven't harvested all the coffee yet, you're going to keep harvesting the coffee. Yeah. Um, and the way that it is really connected to lifestyle, I think, is, is really interesting. And also a perfect segue to the main thing that I want to talk about with you today, speak of combining <laughs> uh, your, your personal life and your professional life. I think one of the most uh, unique and uh, incredible things that I've recognized in you is your strong determination and devotion to things, whether it be uh, exploring through running or whether it be building ego stoves in your community, both in your work and in what you do outside of your work. I think now understanding your, your perspective on how those two things should, should melt I'm just now seeing that it seems like that you you don't just talk the talk, but you're walking the walk and trying to do that in uh, in your own life down here. But I think that you have this certain determination uh, and dedication to things that usually comes on pretty quickly. Uh, I I've seen you start projects in your community and very quickly latch onto them and really dedicate all your all your energy into them uh and then the same thing uh in things that aren't related to you know our environmental work down here where you just latch on to things very quickly and have an incredible throw an incredible amount of yourself and all your energy into it and i think that that could be that could be uh potentially detrimental in that it would be giving you like a tunnel vision and not allow you to and, and not allow you to keep an open mind to other things, but you've accompanied that determination with uh, an openness to exploration. Throughout your time here, you're always looking for new things to do. Even though you're, you're dedicating a lot of your energy to these things that you're participating in, you're always looking for the, the next step or the next cool thing that's going on that you can throw yourself into. Um, I think that you have this flexibility to adapt and, and engulf yourself into things really quickly and at the same time remain open to 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 dedic dedicating yourself to even more. You're kind of like an endless pit of energy. <laughs> uh, I guess I'm not I'm not articulating myself very well here. And I think that that I would describe it as as an extreme devotion to things, but I don't think that devotion is is the right word. Because I often think that, that when I think of devotion, I think there's a connotation of devoting yourself to something else, whether it's like devoting yourself to like another person or devoting yourself to uh, a religion or, uh, or uh, government. And mm -hmm. I find that in your work, I, I mean, I might be wrong, uh, but I have kind of this, this suspicion that your devotion or determination to your, to pretty much everything that you do stems from a sort of, uh, not a leap of a not a leap of faith to something other, but a leap of faith into yourself. So a a deep confidence uh, and faith, not in oh, like I'm gonna devote myself because I think like devotion, like if I was like oh, you're quick to devote, 
it would be like, oh, she she meets a guy and in two weeks she's going to marry him. Because that's quick to vote, but that's not you at all. I think that it's, you have this confidence in yourself that you, that you to from my observations, it seems as though you see something and you say to yourself, I'm going to do this, I'm going to throw all my energy into it because I'm confident enough that I can, that I can get it done, that I can complete it, that I can achieve these goals that I have. Um, and I guess my question is, do, do you view yourself in that same way or what sort, do you have some sort of guiding philosophy that has led you to really throw so much of yourself into your project? Because I, I think a, a lot of times it is really easy to think of Peace Corps as, oh, this is two years of my life or, oh, this is just one project amongst many things. But you really do put in earnest all your energy into things. So. Uh, I just wanted to see if there's some <laughs> if there's some driving idea or or philosophy at the heart of that. Yeah. Well, first off, thank you very much, Dan. That is very sweet of you to oh. say about me and to have. I'm have... just calling the shots if I see him. <laughs> <laughs> and I also I also recognize that I might not have explained that was a very lengthy way of explaining it. Yeah. But I'm I'm lucky that I have you here as someone that understands what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I think. In terms of where it kind of comes from, I, I've been thinking about why I have this kind of, this like, I don't know what the word is either, but I, I do like to commit to things and see them through. I think part of it is that I, I don't know where, but I, I feel like somewhere along the way I realized that I'm, I'm, I'm smart, but I didn't get like the highest grades and I like, I'm athletic, but I'm not the fastest or the, the, you know, I'm, I'm like decent. I'm like a pretty all around, like I can do most things, but I'm not like top at anything. And that's totally fine, Mm -hmm. but I can do most things because I feel like I, I'm willing to commit and maybe I'm not the quickest at learning, but I will put in whatever it is to learn it anyways. So it seems like it's more of something that going back, it's just been a, a way of, just a way of life of like, no, if I want to do this, I, I, I have to give it all, my all, you uh-huh. know, like, like not, I, I think all of us have it in us of you can, you can do anything if you commit to it. Yeah. And I've found that in the combination of endurance, I really enjoy enduring things and that's like I feel like that is if I were to say I had a talent it is just kind of like sticking things out I was gonna say that a very Panamanian Spanish word is aguantar <laughs> which which has it's one of those words that can have multiple meanings it means a lot but really like it's core sort of sort of meaning is to endure things yeah and yeah. I always when I think aguantar uh I always think of you and kind of you for your motto here if I'm quoting you correctly, has been relentless forward motion, yep. which I always think of is a great is a great translation for Alantar yeah. to just keep on pushing forward. Mm-hmm. And that wait, so that's really really interesting that you view it as connected with oh, if you put yourself to something, you can achieve it. But if I don't have like the speed or necessarily the 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 intelligence to be the first person to win the race. It doesn't matter. I, it doesn't matter. I'm still gonna finish. With you. By the way, side note: I outside of this podcast, I'm definitely gonna argue with you on the fact that you're not the fastest or not the smartest because I've seen you beat many. <laughs> you you have won 
a many races down here against <laughs> numerous people. And Thank you. you have proved your intelligence time and time again down here. So we'll we'll discuss that later. Okay. But yeah. um that that's really, really interesting that you connect it with just endurance is your means to achieving your goals. And it's and it's just kinda it's a yes, and it's also like a entertaining, like I it's like such a personal thing. And that, that running and races, for example, mm-hmm. I love endurance because it's not racing the people around you. Uh-huh. And it's not like it doesn't matter where you place because you're running against yourself. Mm-hmm. And you're running, if there are people around you, you're running with them because you're running so far that who cares where you are in relation to other people. I remember one time, this is like a little tangent, I was, I was in a 50K race and I yeah. was like 20 or 25 miles in. And at that point... It's, it's getting to the finish line, and it was on the Pacific Crest Trail, so it was really hilly, mm-hmm. and I ran, I started running with this guy who had run 100 milers, of several hundred mile runs, run the Western States, like, had been, like, around and was, like, in that scene, and, but in this moment, the two of us were just running and talking with each other and getting each other through the last five or ten miles, and it was a very, like, it was personal and it really didn't matter who who got there first and we finished together and it didn't matter it wasn't a race against him it was Mm -hmm. a personal thing for both of us to get from wherever we were in our backgrounds from it was my first ultra and it was his like who knows how many he had done but Uh all of it but both of us had a personal goal in that one time and it was to do that um so it's kind of a tangent but I feel like what I'm getting at is it's just that it's like a endure like in the endurance world it's such a personal thing Mm -hmm. I really enjoy not having it be against anyone and having it be um, but it seems like from that story that it sounds like rather than it being against him you almost raced cooperatively the fact that you were talking with each other the personal became kind of the public and you guys not not pushing each other necessarily in the way of saying, go faster, we're going to go fast together, but just we're going to finish together. Yeah. It's something that became deeply, that's something that started out as deeply personal and ended up finishing kind of in a communal way, mm-hmm. which is uh, which is what I want to ask you about, uh, of taking that kind of vision of endurance and, and finishing and that personal drive. How have you translated that into your projects where you have to incorporate community members, you have to incorporate other people to achieve these goals because mm-hmm. as Peace Corps volunteers we're not just going in there and working by ourselves every day we're working cooperatively with the people in our communities yeah so what what has been your tactic in taking that deeply personal philosophy that deeply personal motivation that you see in yourself and translating it into a, a format or a, translating it into Structuring it in a way so that you can incorporate other people and yeah. kind of adopt them into that, that okay. endurance. Okay. Okay. So I think I think I get what you're getting at. I think it's like a it's the same endurance. It's you can find it in patience. Like I think Peace Corps is like one of the best. It's like an endurance activity over the course of two years of like can <laughs> you know it is it is it's a long time and yeah. we endure various things and I think. One of those is just like patience with life, with people, and with kind of 
allowing them to find that in themselves. Like I said, I think any of us can do what we want if we're like patient enough and relentless. Mm-hmm. And if we let it, let it come, like not at any speed, but just like let it come when it needs to. And so like a good example, I feel like is my women's group. I have this group that I have put a lot of time and heart into and being down here. And when, one of the major things is that when I, when we first started, we first started making a little money with our artists and work. I was always in charge of, I was always in charge of, and uh, of all the funds, of all the notes, all everything. And I, when the time was right, I passed that off and, and gave them the responsibility, not only to do all the math, but to hold on to the money to become responsible, um, just members of the group. And, and I waited for them to volunteer to take on the tasks on their own to decide that they wanted to be the leaders of their own group. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think they had it all along, but I think it was, I think part of the endurance sport is to allow people to identify it in themselves, identify themselves as leaders. And I think for me, a really rewarding thing is that I have so much faith in this group to continue as a group because now they're fully functioning, completely independent of me. Whether or not I go, I know that they're doing their thing. I know that they are... Always, yeah, doing the tasks that they have decided that they want to do, um, and it no longer has has much to do with me, other than sometimes I come and try and help out. And also, that starts by leading by example, which is what you did. You took the you took those notes. You, you took the organ the organizational responsibilities, and you proved that it's totally feasible for someone to do that. Mm-hmm. And they saw you do that for two years and now you can hand it off to them and they have the confidence they can do it. Yeah. Which is the same way of, we often talk about in our training how to start a movement and they say a lot of times the the, the leader, the first person that that's the, that is uh, the first person that's the trailblazer that starts it but equally important is the next person that sees it and realizes that they can also do what the trailblazer is doing and then it turn, expands from there. Yeah. So maybe you, you were that first trailblazer but you've instilled this leadership in your women's group that they can now show that, that they can now they now know that it's possible to do that. Yeah. In the same way that I I don't know, I imagine seeing someone climb Mount Everest makes another person think, oh, a human can climb Mount Everest. Now I can do yeah. that. Now. Yeah. Actually it is possible. <laughs> it is possible, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's a a really fascinating way of taking your uh deep personal determination and expanding it to incorporate other people. So I really like that. Um, Sweet. So so you're unfortunately leaving your women's group to fend for themselves. They're actually loving women. To take care of themselves and crush it. To succeed for themselves. To crush it. Yeah. Um, But you also have to go somewhere, have to do something next. We're finishing up our service here. I believe we are under, it's less than a month now before we before we head back home. Yeah. What is next for Karen Elizabeth Rutland? What <laughs> are you doing when you get back to the United States? Rumor has it you might be following in your father's footsteps. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's never really been in my plan. I actually am following in my father's footsteps, at least for the time being. Um, I'm going to be a wildland firefighter. 
this radical. <laughs> <laughs> wild wildland firefighter. A wildland firefighter is the yeah, what they call us. That's a great official title. Yeah, I feel good about it. Which was what my dad was when he was my age as well. And I'm gonna go to Idaho to do it, which is where he went to do it too. <laughs> and it How serendipitous. Yeah. Um, and so it will be a lot of um a lot of I think a lot of manual labor is what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm really excited to go into a um, a male-dominated activity. This is not why I did it, but I, I'm excited to go into a male-dominated workforce as a strong and confident female. Yeah. Um, and I realized that as a female doing, like, physical labor, I will be a few steps back. But I, I feel like I'm up for the challenge. I'm up to give it my all and and kind of do what we've talked about where I know even if I won't be necessarily the fastest or the best at like digging lines for hours on end, I, I know I can do it and I yeah. will do it to the best of my ability and I'm excited to go see where it takes me and what kind of friendships I build over this over the summer. Oh, I have complete confidence in your ability <laughs> to well, of course to build friendships, but also to absolutely be a fantastic firefighter. Thank you. Um that's really really cool. Do you have do you have any more long-term goals or are you just trying to readjust the US by fighting natural disasters one at a time? <laughs> so, yeah, it seems like it's a good transition back home. Uh-huh. Um I don't I, I have ideas about long-term plans. I mean, ne- I you never know. I might just love it and, and never leave it, mm-hmm. um, which I know happens to some people. But in the chance that it doesn't happen to me, I do. And what I really want to do is is do environmental advocacy. Cool. I don't know exactly how yet. Um, and I think one of the one of my the things that I struggle with is the idea of finding a job to protect the environment and give it my all in that sense and really um, put all my skills and all my time and heart into that, but also put a lot of my heart into being in the outdoors. Yeah. Um, that's one thing that I I don't know when I will find a full-time job or if that's, I don't know how long it's going to be before I can fully commit to that because I want to commit to that really well when yeah. I do but I really want to enjoy. But that comes outdoors. back. That comes back exactly what you were saying about here in Panama, where there isn't that distinct line between yeah. work and and being outside of work. Yeah. You know, so I'm hoping I can find that somehow is is a way to work for the outdoors and what I love, and also be in it. Well, I wish you the best of luck in in pursuing your passions, and I am quite confident that with your endurance your ability to aguantar (laughs) you will definitely achieve those goals and we'll end unfortunately we have to end uh but we'll end on a lighter note uh with the question of what has been the time that you have laughed the hardest here in panama i think the hardest that i've laughed was on my 25th birthday you were there for this moment dan i was um Luckily, lucky enough to have the biggest birthday party of my life in Panama. Oh my God, I do remember this birthday party. Yeah, yeah it was pretty epic. I've never had as many people, and I, I kind of hope to never have a birthday party <laughs> big again. 
Um, but I had a bunch of community members and you guys. I had a handful of volunteers come, and I was so worried about whether or not um, 25 pounds of rice, dry rice, so like I can't even imagine, and how like five chickens. That was going to make enough arroz con pollo, and I had so many things going on. And just for our listeners, arroz con pollo is the traditional birthday dish <laughs> down here, which is arroz, rice, con with pollo, chicken. So they dice up chicken real small, and they cook the rice with some vegetables in the juices of the chicken, and then they mix the chicken back in. Yeah. And it is really, really good. It's amazing. But for birthday parties, especially ones as important as Karen's, Though we'll make huge, huge quantities of this in these giant bowls called pilas, which are just, they're just huge iron cast, uh, uh, like, deep pots, essentially. They're probably, like, two to three feet wide and at least a foot deep. Yeah. <laughs> you put a lot of rice. Yeah. So, your 25th birthday. Yep. Lots of arroz con pollo being made. Lots of arroz con pollo being made. So much going on. All my friends... We're arriving, and and then I turn around, and one of my best friends and her daughter, who was 16 at the time, had brought me a pollera, which is a very traditional Panamanian dress. Um, it's giant. The skirt goes down to your feet, and it has uh, it was pink, and it had a big pink frilly <laughs> top as well. Um, and it was beautiful in, in a traditional sense. And they had me put it on and dress me up and they did my makeup. Another side note is frilly dresses and makeup would maybe not be the most uh, apropos way of describing Karen's style. <laughs> uh, but today it was. But, but that day it... it Became your style. In front of my 60 closest friends, it was my style. And and I just laughed so hard as I was getting covered in the thickest makeup I may have ever had in my life. And <laughs> in the hottest, sweatiest, frilliest dress I've also ever worn in my life. And with the tightest braid ever. Mm. And I just remember cracking up at how all this had come together to this one moment of me sitting there all... In front of everyone, being watched and being observed as I couldn't have felt less comfortable in how I was looking and feeling. I think I actually captured a photo of you laughing hysterically in that poeta. <laughs> I, will, I will make it the photo for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll include it so people can get an idea of what you look like. Um, but yeah, Karen, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah. I had an incredible time talking to you. You were... So insightful. You came with a a level of self understanding that I I learned a lot of both about you, and it made me. I'm gonna be a little introspective now for for the rest of the day thinking about it. But Good. thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for the questions and the insight and observing me from the other side of the cerro and putting this together. Oh yeah, I gotta I gotta hike out there at least one more time. Please do. I'll give you the correct directions. Yeah, last time I got lost and went an hour in the wrong direction and ended up finding a community I'd never been to and just hung out there, drank coffee with the people there, incredibly nice, which is not an unusual thing to happen to the Peace Corps volunteers down here. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you, Dan.